Welcome to Talkie Talk, podcast for the media by us.com. Joining me today is TJ. Hello. Uh, we got Chris. Hello. And we got Brent. Hello. Hello. Um, and we're going to be talking about what we've been watching within the last week, uh, maybe touch on some reality roundup, uh, maybe do a little summary of the week's film, TV, and games news, and then uh, give you a sweet little recommendation for what to stream this weekend. <laughs> I'm trying out a new voice. How's it sound? Gross. <laughs> it really it sounds, it sounds good. I do too. <laughs> I got inspired by the vast of night. I'm going to try to do a 1940s radio voice going forward. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to start off by talking about what we've been watching or playing with the last week. Does anybody want to go first? I'll go first. Um, sorry, I was trying to get as close to my camera as possible. Uh, oh, first, I haven't been, been playing, I've been watching a ton or playing a ton, um, but <clears throat> I do want to give you an update on how fast Kelly and I are watching Survivor. We are now up to uh, Micronesia. Um, We're now up to 4.5 speed. Does that mean you're done with Micronesia or you're, you know, we, we just started it, um, which is fans versus favorites. Um, and it's kind of cool watching that season after kind of getting to know some of the uh, some of the people from twelve from season twelve to season sixteen. Um, you know, especially like like now that James knows how to play Survivor better, now that he's like experienced episodes of Survivor because when he was on Survivor China, it was clear he did not give a shit about Survivor. He was just going on like a weird camping trip in China where they didn't let him bring anything. James um, is like a he he's like a a guy who's mildly aware of the game, but uh, is mostly there to narrate the game to the camera. He's so good at commenting on other players. He he might be one of my all time favorites in that regard. Yeah, his his comment when uh, Jamie had the piece of wood that she thought was an immunity idol. His whole, like, commentary about, like, you know, because he's also got that, like, small-town uh, rural accent, uh, like, southern rural accent. But he's like, man, I can't wait to see the look on her face when she pulls out that piece of wood. <laughs> it's just really funny. Uh, but, yeah, so we've been watching a ton of Survivor. It's just been great. I haven't been watching movies because it's just, like, a great way to turn my brain off and just have something going the way that, like, Love Island was. Um, but we're enjoying it. Um, the well, I'm interested to get. I'm, I'm happy now that immunity idols aren't stupid. The super idols are awful. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that like once Yule figured out how to play them, like no one was ever going to top that. Right. Um, but it's still funny because you can tell that people, at least through season 15, still don't know how to use immunity idols. They like, they're like the boogeyman where everyone like talks about them and like is pretty sure that they're there and like they're pretty sure that like crazy things can happen when they're played, but everyone's too afraid to actually play them. Um, like Probst kind of dig into James a little bit uh, when he's like, you, you were at seven, you only had three more opportunities to use your idols and you had two of them, why didn't you use them? And it's like kind of unfair on Jeff's part because this is the first time that this has been a thing. Right. Um, but 
I'm, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how the game evolved and how quickly it evolved. Yeah, this is a, a really good stretch, like I said last week. And uh, Micronesia, I think, is a great season because the, the pre-merge is entertaining and the post-merge is one of the all-time best, I think, as, as far as entertainment value goes. And um, it's the season that I think I can say got my wife hooked on Survivor. Um, I think Winners at War, she, she certainly enjoyed watching. Uh, and then Micronesia, though, was the one where she really just started, like, she she talked to the players uh, as they make decisions, and she she yells things at them, and uh, it's it's really funny to watch. And um, and then we we skipped uh, seventeen, and we went straight to we just finished eighteen last night. Token Sheens, and um, she said, "I said, so did you like Token Sheens?" And she said, "I loved it." I and so she's now kind of fully fully hooked. Um, which means I, I'm still being careful about what seasons I, I pick for us to watch because I'm afraid, I'm afraid that a bad season could kill it quickly. Oh. But, um, but uh, no, it's it's that's it's fun. Micronesia. I, I'll be excited to talk to you all about Micronesia when you finish because I recently watched it. Yeah, I'm I'm actually interested. Uh, so I'm guessing that you think that 17 is a bad season then. Yes. Okay. I'm really interested to watch because like 12 to 16, like those like 12, 13, 14, 15 are all pretty good seasons. Yeah. Like the only thing that's frustrating is I feel like China was a little weak. Um, I, I really liked the, um, uh, like the, the people in it were really entertaining. Even Courtney, who I can imagine like irritates some people and like Jean Robert, who's kind of an oaf. Um, mm-hmm. But they make for entertaining television. Um, but the gameplay part of it was pretty weak. Like, yeah, you know, you had a major alliance who understood what being in the driving seat was. And I think that Todd just kind of annihilated that game. Like, he and Amanda came in, knew how to play. No one else really knew how to play. And they just, like, manipulated the shit out of everyone. And they knew exactly how to pander to people on the jury's egos. And then Todd just did better than Amanda. I think he is a somewhat evolutionary winner just because he, he's kind of – he's sort of who I trace the, the, the beginnings of, hey, game, respect, game, kind of. Like, that's how, you, that's how you, the jury, should be. I think he, he, it's one of the best final travels that I've ever seen is Todd's performance, especially against Amanda. And uh, it's he, – he is a, a very underrated winner, I think, and a very good one. And – I. I don't know if you've read any about Todd. He had some, he had a lot of serious issues after Survivor. Um, he like, nearly drank himself to death. He went on the Dr. Phil show. It hmm. was, uh, um, he's had a lot of personal uh, struggles. And I think if not for those, we would have seen him on Winners at War. It would be interesting to see kind of how he adapted to a newer style play. Cause I think he, he has like a similar, <clears throat> not having seen Sophie's season, but having talked about it. It sounds like he kind of had a similar uh, experience where he like was playing a game with idiots who thought that they were on a camping trip and just like schooled them all on how to play Survivor. And then like when he was in the final three, like you really didn't have any options to pick anyone else. Um, Mm -hmm. And lucky for him, he had a smart jury who he told like, hey, I know that this, it was crazy. And I know that I lied to all of you, but like, 
you now have seen the template on how to play Survivor. And they kind of all were like, oh, okay, yep, then you definitely deserve to win. And maybe he framed it perfectly, or maybe he just, you know, did uh, school them. Right. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Because um, it's interesting when you also think like Courtney got two votes and Amanda got one, and Courtney like didn't do anything. Like she, she was a layup. She knew she was a layup. Everyone in the jury told her she was a layup, and she still got two votes. I, I don't get it. Um. But yeah, so we're enjoying that. Um, there, there are some redeeming aspects to season seventeen. Um, it's the first HD season, which after you after you've watched like five straight S, you know standard definition seasons, uh, it's gonna pop off your screen. It's gonna be amazing. But um, I really like the setting. It's in Gabon, and uh, it's I, I like some of the seasons where they get off the beach and they get, but. Uh, it's just the cast of Gabon is pretty terrible, and I, I think one of the the all time lows as far as cast goes. I mean, they get a they get a, an Olympic runner who can't run up a hill on the first episode. It's like, well, you chose poorly, Survivor. You chose poorly. Um, yeah, and I'm really interested to see kind of where the shift is from like this person was recruited because they are going to be an interesting personality. Uh, versus like we have this filing cabinet full of applications and we've had these people in the back burner for like three years and now we're gonna let them like have their shot of the show because like i feel like they're slowly getting to that point and todd and amanda were kind of a good uh test that like you know they they highlighted with todd the first time that i've seen like oh he's been watching this show since he was a kid and now he has a chance to be on and i know that like soon like everyone on the show is going to be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just don't really have a whole lot of appreciation for like dumbs who get on the show, which is why like fans versus favorites is going to be a breath of fresh air because I mean, it's, it, it is what the tin says, like it's fans of the show. And then like people who've already played. Well, but. be ready for some dummies though. <laughs> there are some dummies this season. But man, it's it's really fun. Um, so I've been playing a game. Uh, it's an old game, but it has a new twist to it. Uh, I've been playing the Link to the Past again, um, but I've been playing a randomizer, which is a an interesting way to take uh, one of my favorite games of all time, and I think arguably like one of the best Legend of Zelda games of all time and completely uh, rejuvenating it. Uh, what the settings that I have on for the randomizer uh, mean that all the enemies are shuffled, so they're in different places. They all have uh, a random amount of health. They do a random amount of damage. Um, all of the entrances lead to random locations, and all of the chest items are randomized. So. I think in my gameplay right now, I'm about like 30 minutes in. I just got my first sword. Um, I have both canes, um, so I can, and I have the fire rod and a bow. Like I don't have the mirror, I don't have the the dash boots, um, or as the randomized community calls them, scooty boots. Um, (laughs) 
but it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and I encourage people to look into what a randomizer run is because it's it's pretty bananas. Um, it sounds like constantly stressful. <laughs> it does. <laughs> sounds terrifying. I mean, it's like still. So I'm not doing it like like the way that people do it who like you know stream and do like like uh, like races and speed runs of randomizer seeds have like a notepad where they like keep notes of like where stuff is. And I'm not doing that. I'm just like casual, just I'm gonna play around in it until it's not fun anymore. And then I'll generate a new seed and I'll play around in it until it's not fun anymore. Um, but it's like, yeah, it is stressful because you run from every enemy because I like, I, like I was telling you guys before we started recording, uh, a, a common enemy from like the vanilla link to the past is the thief and it's just this character who just like chases you and is faster than you and always catches you and when he bumps into you he doesn't do any damage but like he knocks a few rupees out of your wallet and it's like okay that's fine uh, the thieves in my game do uh six parts of damage and basically instantly kill me <laughs> so and they're faster than me and i have no way of getting away from them and at the time i didn't have a sword so i couldn't like fight them off uh <laughs> So, the whole death characters. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Or like I'll walk into, like I'll be in the village. I'll go into a house, which then is actually the entrance to a dungeon. And as soon as I go in there, uh, the an enemy has been randomized. So there's like a giant, like taking up my entire screen, rolling pin filled with spikes, just like coming at me. And it's just like, okay, well, I guess I don't want to be here. <laughs> so I'll just like save and quit. Just, Go find another door to poke my head in. Um, it's it's kind of fun, um, and it's a great thing to kind of just turn my brain off, just like run around and get killed a bunch of times. But that's me. Uh, you know, I didn't didn't really do much else than than survive. It kind of, I mean, you can tell by the pace of <laughs> how we've watched two seasons since we last recorded a podcast, like seven days ago. Um, we just have had Survivor on in the background all the time. So that's my watch list. Sweet. Uh, I can go. I watched a couple of movies. Uh, I watched two-thirds of the uh, the group we had to recommend from uh, last podcast. Uh, the first one was the, the newest Kenneth Branagh effort. I guess you could call it an effort. It was uh, Artemis Fowl based on a... Man, if you would have asked me, I would have said that book was written in like like 80 years ago. I don't know why I thought that, but it was written about 20 years ago. And uh, that movie is is very hot garbage. <laughs> it was very, very hard to watch. Um, there's like as many characters as there are in like Return of the King packed into like an hour and a half movie with a really a very simple plot was just like his dad was kidnapped and fairies are real and the fairies and this kid have to get their dad back and they do. Well, fairies are real though. So it's not that different. Right. That's the only thing that that exists uh, in in our plane and the plane of Artemis Fowl. (laughs) Uh, Josh Gad is kind of wasted as a narrator. Isn't his name like Munch Diggler? Oh, okay. This part is a bonkers. 
his name is Mulch Diggums. And what he does is widens his mouth maybe like 20 times bigger than you could open it. And yep, just like that, Brent. And then digs holes by eating the ground. Mulch Diggums. Get it? Yeah, I, I also fail to see how you keep saying that this is different from real life. <laughs> I think Josh Gad can do that. <laughs> uh, he also, and this is probably, I assume, uh, part of the problem I have with the book. He is a dwarf, but a special race of dwarfs called Dwarf Giganticus. And those are just humans. <laughs> They're just human-sized people with no other features, I guess. I don't know how you tell them apart, I guess. Um, you wait till they open their mouths, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, it was just awful. There's, I mean, like, Judy Ditch isn't it a bunch. She doesn't do much. Colin Farrell's not in it really at all. I, I, I don't know. It's just one of one of the worst like fantasy movies I've seen ever, I think. I know what you mean when you say Colin Farrell's not really in it at all, because it, it means he's in the movie, but there's just not much for him to do. Um, but I, I I thought maybe it would be funny if you just started naming actors who weren't in the movie as like <laughs> that's yeah. the most interesting thing about the movie. Yeah. It's like, you know, Marlon Brando, not in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The movie does not have John David Washington. And to hold that uh, against it is very funny. <laughs> Yeah, it would be fun just to like. Yeah, I mean, I said Hong Chao was in it before I watched it, and I see now that she was in it, and I don't remember her at all. Um, Artemis Fowl like to like put you in a fugue state. I mean, it did. It was it was like eight in the morning, and I was like, "Oh, this movie's super short. I'll just put it on while I'm eating breakfast." And then I sat there, and then it ended. <laughs> and that was my experience with the movie. And someone else had eaten your breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I like that also. I was, I was, yeah, my breakfast was gone and I was still hungry. Mulch Diggums came into my house, I think. Um, this movie was also like supposed to be done by Harvey Weinstein uh, several years ago. Like the, the one that got made, he was originally attached to the producer. And like Robert De Niro was going to be in it and Sharsha Ronan was going to be in it. And then when all the Harvey Weinstein shit went down, they just like canceled everything, but kind of kept moving with production. And that seems like a horrible recipe for a movie. <laughs> they should have not done it. Um, but one of my favorite things I read on Wikipedia was uh, there was an, an extra who, uh, <clears throat> this was his quote, I walked across the field with a lot of other people. It wasn't too taxing, although I did manage to get it wrong a few times. But the only direction I was given was walk across the field and don't look at the camera. I must have looked at the camera like 20 times. That made it to the movie. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, did they even edit this movie? I don't know what the fuck happened? Um, but yeah, do not watch Artemis Fowl. It was, it was very, very bad. It was Wonder, do, do, go for it, David. I guess if I have to repeat it again, it would be it was foul. Okay. Uh, do you think that it would help if you knew the uh, like if you'd read the books? I mean, from what I've read, uh, everybody who read the books is like super angry. Okay. So 
it would have given me something to do while I watched the movie, I guess. But that way, it might help. <laughs> something to think about other than what was happening on the TV. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, man. It was, it's funny because like the author is like, I support the changes they made. And it's like, of course you do. <laughs> yeah, you have yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, why wouldn't you? Do you think they're going to make a sequel? Uh, no. No. <laughs> I don't. Um, what about a spinoff that's just mulch diggums? <laughs> it can't be worse. Um, oddly, I'm just now seeing this was the the two movies I watched this week. Both were filmed in Ho Chi Minh City. <laughs> I have no idea what Artemis Fowl was filmed in Ho Chi Minh City. <laughs> it makes no sense at all. Hmm. Unless it was like the underground fairy world. I've never been to Ho Chi Minh City. I don't know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Do they have fairies and, and dwarves and shit there? Yeah. Can't rule it out. Yeah. Cheap fairy uh, labor. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I'm trying to see if there are any like fun uh, review quotes, and I'm not seeing much. They were so... Uh, so upset. <laughs> they were just like, bad, bad movie. <laughs> uh, the other movie I watched though was fucking excellent. And uh, I would recommend it. And I think David watched it as well. But I watched uh, the new Spike Lee joint, The Five Bloods. Yep, I saw it too. Uh, man, Brent, I feel like this is the opposite of the Spike Lee movie we talked about last week, uh, Inside Man. He said it's like a lot of fun, but not the most important movie that Spike made, but one of the most entertaining, you know, and right. I would agree with what you said. Uh, this movie is entertaining, so it's not the opposite, but it is important, I think, now. Um, I fucking loved it. Yeah, I thought it was great. I, I got yeah. gave it about four and a half stars. Um, it's, a, it's a full two and a half hour movie crammed with, uh, you know, Spike Lee movies, I never suffer for a lack of ideas or things to talk about. And it's got like, just like, uh, like thematic maximalism is what I call it. It's, it, it touches on um, like anti-war sentiments, obviously racism, just a brief touch on opioid crises, biracial identity, police brutality, uh, black lives matter movement is in it. uh, Conspiracy theories or facts depending on how you look at it, black nationalism, colonialism. It's just like, it's all in there. He's yeah. it's, uh, bringing up the conversation. Um, it's a, uh, yeah, not everything really gets lands or kind of executes in, in my opinion, but the, the stuff that does and the stuff it tries, um, it's, it's, it's definitely very impressive. And, and me and David talked about this a little bit, and I feel like if this movie was like, I think what I told David, if this movie was directed by Michael Bay, I probably would have thought it was considerably worse. Um, but I know that Spike Lee does things for like a reason, or I have to at least assume that. And, uh, or I don't have to, but I choose to. And I, I think with the like overload of content and what like crises he touches on, uh, it's interesting that the rest of it's kind of like formulaic uh, almost um, like there's four guys and they play like the four guys that are in every like buddy 
movie where there's four dudes like there's like the rich guy or like how some groups have like that dude or like a womanizer or whatever then there's like big black guy who voted for trump and is like a war veteran and super conservative and then there's like the normal one who's kind of the head of everything and there's the like like, comic relief who wears a hawaiian shirt the whole time like it's very like simple in that aspect and so complicated in most other aspects yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with your your point there. I think it's pretty smart. Um, there's a lot of self-referential stuff in this movie that makes me think that that's on purpose. They have uh, the uh, the four main characters have a discussion about uh, Rambo. You know, Rambo's a Vietnam vet, and they're talking about that. You know, some people say they like that Rambo movie, and the other guys are like, you know, I don't want to see that. I'd rather see something about Milton Olive, who's the uh, first African-American to be awarded a medal of honor in the Vietnam war. And he threw himself on a grenade and uh, just discussing Rambo. And instead of having Rambo, having an African-American POW like rescue story, I think it's kind of on purpose, some of that stuff, but maybe I'm just inferring intent just because of my respect for spike. Maybe reality somewhere in between those. I mean, I I don't, I don't think me choosing that is like crazy. I think Spike's earned that. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, of course. I've seen enough of his movies to know that he's probably not just going to make some shit movie for no reason at all. Um, I, I do think the performances were generally uh, really, really good. Uh, standouts to me were Delroy Lindo plays the like he's got to make America Great Again hat on the whole movie, like uh, that guy and. Uh, I assume they would push him for a lead actor Oscar nom, and I would not be shocked at all if he did get nominated. Um, he was incredible. Uh, I thought it was one of the best performances I've ever seen from Chadwick Boseman, too. Um, yeah, Chadwick Boseman, um, he's got like a high degree of difficulty there. He's uh, just for the you know bare bones of the plot. It's for Vietnam vets and... You know, it's, it's the five bloods. So the fifth one is their kind of troop leader who died in Vietnam. And they're kind of going back to pay respects. At least that's how the movie starts. So Chadwick Boseman is the one who gets killed in action. And uh, so the degree of difficulty is he's basically just in some flashbacks. But he's got to convince you that he was such a magnetic and uh, um, moving presence in their lives that they all still talk about him to this day. And he kind of nails that with just just a few scenes. He's shows like the you know bravado of like a, a leader and someone who can really uh, you know change people's minds and hearts. I think that's pretty tough to do. And something else talking about the flashbacks and another reason why I think a lot of what we were talking about with the simplicity and like tropey nature of the movie was on purpose is uh there's no different actors in these flashbacks. So like when they flash back to the Vietnam War, it's 70-year-old Delroy Linda and Chadwick Boseman walking through the forest. Like, there's no younger version of these four guys that are there now. They're playing both versions of themselves, which I have to think is is on purpose and, and, and leads to the not, like, deep film theory that he... that they're, they're still living that. You know what I mean? They're still living the war every day. Uh, and, um, yeah. And then a lot of the other plot is is interesting it, it does jump around a lot and like you know 
Paul Walter Hauser's in this movie, and I think he's just in it because him and Spike Lee became like best friends after Black Klansman, and Paul Walter Hauser's probably just going to be in every Spike Lee movie that Spike Lee makes from now on because I think he's just a guy who's never going to say no to Spike, and Spike likes him a lot. Does he play a fat racist? <laughs> no, he plays a, a guy who works for a, a foundation that's like uh, looking for and removing still live mines in Vietnam. Okay. Um, and like it's the first Jean Reno appearance I've seen in fucking forever. Um, and neither one of them are like, they don't stand out, but it's, again, it's, it's you know, what you get to do when you're Spike Lee. You right. get to hire a Walter Hauser in a kind of a throwaway role that could have been anybody. Um, but you get to hire a professional because you're good and everybody likes you. <laughs> Um, but I gave it four and a half stars on Netflix and it, it could have been lower. I kind of bumped it up due to mainly Delroy Linda's performance. I just thought it was super um, really good. He does a good job of balancing kind of being a, a an asshole and a hero. And uh, I don't know. I like that, that character just a lot. It didn't resonate at all really, but it was very, very interesting to see a character like that in a Spike Lee movie. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of after having watched last year, watching uh, The Irishman and Joe Pesci in there. I got the same kind of like planting on my flag, similar to you of that's probably the performance of the year so far for me is Delroy Lindo in that in that movie, um, especially later on his monologues to camera uh, when he's kind of by himself a little bit. He's, he's, uh, in the movie, they say he's a little troubled and he talks to himself and he just does uh, a lot of character work, just speaking directly to camera and in Spike Lee, um, stylistic touches, he's walking through the forest and he's, it's like, uh, it's point of view, not point of view. What is it? Like the Jonathan Demi style where he's talking directly to the camera instead of just, uh, you know, off camera. I don't know the, the fancy words for things, but it's a uh, it's pretty effective though. He does a he does a great job. Yeah, and I've always liked him, and and, and, and realizing uh, realized as after the film that he really hadn't done much in the past like decade. Mm -hmm. He's been in like four or five movies in the past ten years. So, but yeah, super good. Highly recommend the Five Bloods. It's on Netflix. That's all I watched. Or all I want to talk about, anyway. I woke up early this morning and watched The Fellowship of the Ring. It's still good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I watched the, the Hobbit this week. It's still interminably long. Yes. <laughs> Man, it was I was, I was surprising just... if it got shorter. You're like, what, what happens? It's like an hour and a half now. I was talking to uh, Al earlier in the week and we just were talking about how like the hob how mad the hobbit is that whole franchise and i was like i think it's mainly because like one of the things that i love about lord of the rings was like they're in the shire and then they're in rivendell and then they're at rohan and now they're at helm's deep and like the locations move and they don't move back and forth so it's pretty easy to follow but in the hobbit it's like they get to the mountain and then they're there for seven hours <laughs> it's like god damn that's a lot of mountain yeah, but before they get to that mountain, they have to go through another mountain <laughs> with all the goblins. Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of inside mountains in the Hobbit series. Yeah. 
And apparently trolls are real easy to trick. <laughs> That's what I learned about the first Hobbit movie. It's like, just make them stay up real late. <laughs> I'm a wizard. <laughs> yeah. Stupid trolls. Um, but yeah, that's all I want to talk about anyway. Well, I'll talk about uh, what I watched this week. Um, I'm not going to mention most of the things I watched because they're, they're things we've probably all seen multiple times. Um, but uh, there is one kind of odd outlier, and that is uh, I followed up on my promise last week uh, to start uh, my Andre Tarkovsky uh, filmography, and uh, I watched the 1979 movie Stalker. Nice. Um, have have you has anybody seen that movie? I don't think no. I have. I'm gonna I'm looking at it as you talk because it does ring a bell, but I think it's just on list. You know what I mean? I've, yeah. I've heard of it, and I just know that it's uh it's an intense influence on a lot of filmmakers and the sci-fi and other yeah. genres. Yeah, I looked it up recently. That's why it's in my head because I saw it on Brent's letterbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, I've recently read a lot about it. I I didn't know much about this movie and um. I actually didn't know about, I mean, it doesn't shock me that it had influence or that it was influential, but I didn't know about any of those influences going in. And then once the movie starts and once you figure out what the movie's about, there is a recent movie that is very obviously influenced by this. And that is, uh, let me, let me give you basically the, the plot, which is uh, uh, set in a futuristic kind of gray city where, Um, Just outside the city, a meteorite has crashed and created a what is known as the zone. And inside the zone, uh, physics don't work, you know, normally. And there is said to be a place that grants you your deepest wish, if you can reach it. And um, however, getting there, getting through the zone can be very treacherous and whatnot. And once they once they they started it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is heavily linked to Annihilation." I was about to Alex say, Garland. yeah, yeah. Um, it feels very much like it feels like Annihilation, except less obviously. It's nineteen seventy nine Soviet movie. It's not as uh, visually stunning as Annihilation, but it is. Uh, it is a really really good movie. It's um. It it kind of focuses on the center question of uh, should you be afraid of what your most inner desire actually is? And then I think that's sort of the central question of the movie because it's, you know, it, the MacGuffin, the thing at the end, the, the, the final room, it sounds pretty great. Um, but what if what you, what if what you actively want what if you what if you think you want world peace, but you you actually want something much more selfish? And so I think that's a very interesting concept to this movie. And uh, anyway, it's a the the stalker is the main character. That's the name given to people who um, know how to traverse the zone, and they lead basically people who pay them a bunch of money to take them in the zone to try to get to the room or whatever. And um, it's uh, it's about these three guys. One's uh, one's a writer who, uh, I think he he he's afraid of. Uh, he he said he's afraid of, of of having writer's block. So he wants to be he wants the the room to give him uh, the ability to write uh, forever. And 
the other is a professor and I forget exactly what he says he's seeking to do, but um, it's a, uh, it's, it's a lot of discussions about philosophy and their background. It's a, it's a very slow movie. It's this, I would call it, you know, like the actual genre is slow, slow cinema. Um, they, there's a lot of walking. There's a lot of just pensiveness to the movie and it's, so it's not a, you know, a flappy sci-fi movie in that regard, but it is, I would say it's similar to 2001, at least in its pacing. So it's a very, kind of have to be down for the set um, to get through it. But it's, uh, if you are, man, I think it's really, really rewarding and really interesting movie. Um, and it's easy to see why it's such a huge influence on on sci-fi that came afterwards. Nice. nice. So you're down with the sitness? You're going to watch more Tarkovsky? Yeah, I think so. I, I was a little worried because it's like two hours and 45 minutes. I was a little worried. And the, the first 20, I mean, boy, it, it prepares you quickly for the pace. I mean, the, the slowest part of the movie is the opening because it's 10 minutes of just watching a guy in a bar. and You don't, you don't hear. There's no dialogue. He's sitting there having a drink while, while, while credits roll. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like, hey, get through this. You're getting good shape. What, what um, a flex! <laughs> yeah, it, it's really beautiful though. It's like a lot of the a lot of the scenes in the movie they feel like like watching paintings, kind of. And even the guy in the bar is like that. It's it's all it's all very gold goldish, like a goldish hue of sepia tone almost. And um, it's it's really interesting looking, even when there's not a lot of interesting things happening. Um, but. It's definitely it's a it's a, a very unique filmmaker um, and a very unique style that I'm interested to watch more of. I know Solaris is his other biggest work, which I'm I'm interested to check out. I think he also did Andre Rublev, which um mm-hmm. uh, is, is, I think those are kind of his big three. But Stalker was pretty awesome. The uh, numbers on it are funny because I've never looked at one that was filmed in the USSR and released in the USSR, but it's just like budget. Uh, one million Soviet ruble box office. Four million tickets. <laughs> okay. I I guess tickets sold is what uh, inflation adjusted grosses try to be. But I do kind of wish we just had ticket sales numbers. Like that would be very helpful to be able be, to compare. Yeah, it'd be a lot more useful. Yeah, especially like if the flash in the pan that was 3d movies i know they get like an artificial bump from uh those ticket prices being like 50 percent more expensive yeah or like imax like uh I'm, i'd be curious to see if what movies make the highest amount of money relative to their ticket sales because like uh something like Dunkirk, for example, is just, okay, you got to spend 20, you know, 25 bucks on this movie because that's the way to see it and whatnot. And there's a big push for, for IMAX viewings, but yeah, I like the simplicity of ticket sales. So Soviet Russia, I like one thing. <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of it for me. I watched like independence day this week. Um, that's all right. Is is um, I watched Air Force One. Both those movies were nominated for like uh, Oscars in the uh, in the mid nineties. Um, Air Force One, the the crash of the plane at the end of the movie into the ocean is 
ridiculously stupid looking now. Oh my god, the uh, the the special effects of that scene are a fucking joke. They are a joke. It looks like you did it on your, you know, Windows ninety five. Um, Independence Day. The uh, I remember being blown away by those uh, visual effects when I was a kid. They're not as good, but uh, some of them are still okay though. It's just that there's this weird thing that uh, uh, oh, who directed that movie? Is that Emmerich or yeah, Roland Emmerich? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ask yourself, like, were landmarks destroyed? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really that's a fairly uncomfortable section of that movie is July second, and I did not like the orgy of destruction as much this time, but. Uh, afterwards, that movie gets it's pretty fun because then it just, you just let Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum and Bill Pullman take over, which is which is a lot of fun. But there's this weird thing that Emmerich does, which is uh, he really loves shots from inside buildings, looking out doorways where the <clears throat> destruction is just happening outside the doorway, but somehow can't reach inside the doorway. There's multiple shots of that, including uh, the, the, the famous the, tunnel scene with the dog. The okay, fox to the dog. Oh my god, yeah. it makes no sense at all. I love that, that that ridiculous shit where the dog jumps off the top of the car. It's so phenomenal. Holy shit! I just googled the, the Air Force One plane crash. <laughs> oh oh my god! It looks like a cutaway when you fail flight simulator on like your Windows 3.1. Like, <laughs> like you're running that shit off like a floppy disk. Yeah, it looks, it looks so bad. And that that movie was very competently done on a technical side up until that point. Like it's just, you know it's got great sound. It was nominated for best sound, and uh, the I don't think there were a ton of visual effects, but like even the, like the people parachuting off or the uh, when they they try to rescue people with the 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 oil tank or the uh, the yeah the the tanker plane and they're swinging off the cable. It doesn't look great, but it looks fine. But then the crash happens, and the like it doesn't even splash the water very much. That's the uh, worst part about yeah. it. It's it's bad. It's very very bad. I've won it three times. I love it. <laughs> Maybe I remember at some like Christmas party or whatever, and I guess it was a fourth party probably, and we were like, "On Independence Day, it's got to be on." And our buddy Brian, who I don't think listens to the podcast, but he was like. Y'all just like like that movie like from jokes, right? It's a really bad movie, and we all like just like <laughs> verbally accost them. <laughs> We're like, "Get the fuck out of here, Brian!" Movie's amazing. <laughs> Suck. <laughs> Not allowed to watch it in your own house. <laughs> Come outside. <laughs> I still don't understand how they were able to uh, link up to the spaceship for the uh, to upload a virus. I don't, like yeah, luckily, they use they use the hole in Zoom. <laughs> they hacked it. It's like, oh, yeah. luckily this this alien spaceship has a USB port or whatever the 1996 equivalent of that was. Well, it is universal, so the US. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, yeah, that that is and after watching the core, like you have to have at least five computers to hack the internet. Jeff Goldblum only had one. I don't even know how that worked. <laughs> had a great battery life, though. He used that thing the whole movie. I mean, he also did hack the White House <laughs> the first five minutes. I guess that was, or not the White House. It was like her cell phone or whatever. 
with a little suction cup antenna he put on top of the car. <laughs> it's not uh, the most logical movie ever made. It is. It is not. My favorite part, having watched now the minute-long video of the Air Force One crash. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part is the shot of the guy standing in the open door. <laughs> yeah. You can uh, hear him also going, no. Yeah. <laughs> Sander Berkeley, I think. Thank you for recommending that. That is, that is a... <laughs> <laughs> that was a bright spot of my day. It only took a minute to watch. It's <laughs> uh, good shit. Yeah, we should we should mark. You can figure out who are how many viewers or listeners we have by seeing how many views that has. <laughs> that goes up. Yeah. See if it spikes in the next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, who's up? Who's David? Me. Uh, I just got a couple more things that haven't been mentioned yet. Uh, still doing the uh, Studio Ghibli thing. I did uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, the 1989 Miyazaki. I'd never seen it before. Um, this one is uh, Kiki is a uh, witch, and on her 13th birthday, she has to go out and find a find her own home and find a, kind of a vocation. Um, example is her mom does potions. Some other people do other stuff, but she kind of has like a specialization that she's got to figure out and kind of find a, find a place to live. Um, very, uh, very uh, coming of age uh, style Miyazaki. Um, I won't talk about it too much, but it's, it's still, it's super charming. It's super light. Where my neighbor Totoro is like uh, a love letter to childhood. This is kind of a love letter to coming of age. It's it's kind of advanced in a couple of years of the mind of the characters that it really expertly inhabits. Um, and just uh, what you'd expect from Studio Ghibli. Just beautiful animation. Even more obsession and dedication to portraying what flight means to Miyazaki. Which I think is like freedom and beauty and awe. And you, you see a lot of that because uh, it's in the title, but Kiki's specialization as a witch is in uh, delivering, delivery. So she just uh, delivers parcels and all kinds of things. Um, it's also, she is in this city and it's a real nice, uh, nice depiction of a little community she stumbles into is a, uh, a baker kind of takes her in and she's a nice kid Kiki is and she delivers something for her and she stays in her attic and then she just kind of starts to meet people in the in the town so it's just kind of like a, a nice people movie people doing nice stuff <laughs> it's, it's, it's not bad to have something like that in your life right now so I give like it the, uh, two Miyazaki's up <laughs> uh, I assume this was the Disney dub that's on HBMX yeah yeah. So Kirsten Dunst and Phil Hartman. Yeah, it was nice to hear Phil Hartman too. I was gonna say, I bet that was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but uh, I recommend it. Um, the only other thing, uh, or I watched Knives Out again because it's new on, uh, or it just came to Prime, and uh, I think Brent you'd watched it a couple weeks ago or so. Um, still good. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent rewatch. Yeah. It's probably going to be a one that, you know, return to every couple of years because it's just a fucking fun movie. Yeah, I think Brent mentioned that. I think it was on air. Like, a lot of times those movies lose something on a rewatch. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I haven't. Well, I did rewatch it, but pretty quick after I watched it in theaters, and uh, that movie doesn't and lose a lot. Yeah, uh, the the twist and turn don't really matter, and I think Brent's point holds, which was like they kind of explain it to you in the first five minutes. The the big mystery, anyway. Um, you have to figure out what the other mystery is, kind of which. Clever screenwriting from an excellent screenwriter, I think. Sure. And I think the real highlight of the movie and the real reason I think everyone tends to really like it is just the the interplay of all the characters and the way they they kind of snip and snap at one another uh, while trying to maintain their niceties. And it just makes for really good, impressive comedy. Because mm-hmm. yeah, like that part in a very unrealistic movie is like super realistic. You know what I mean? It's a family member snap at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so watch that. It's a good movie. Um, and then the only other thing I watched, I watched from uh, Netflix's YouTube channel. Uh, it was uploaded on the Friday. It was Dave Chappelle's, not really a comedy special, but a special. I'd describe it more as kind of a angry, rage-filled shout into the void than it is stand-up. But it's uh, 8:46. Um, it's it's, uh, it's it's pretty powerful. Uh, kind of half hour of uh, of just more of a speech than stand up comedy. Have any of you guys uh, checked that out yet? I know it's kind of going around right now. I watched it last night. I thought it was incredible. Yeah, um, very moving. Um, I, I recommend it a lot. Um, I know Dave Chappelle is controversial with a lot of people, especially with his last uh, stand-up special, but uh, highly recommend it to uh, hear his viewpoint and uh, hear from him how he, he doesn't even know if his viewpoint really needs to even be said. He very eloquently says, you know, the streets are kind of speaking for themselves right now and we just kind of have to have to listen. Um, going through the details of each, he has a section where he goes through the details of each police brutality murder kind of one by one. There's a uh, kind of a heartbreaking momentum to it by the end of it. And he's still, uh, he still has just a magnetic way of speaking. Like even though it's, it's not comedy, I think it's still, uh, still interesting to hear him speak on this thing. Um, It's tough to really talk about beyond that, but I just recommend people check it out. It's kind of a, like I said, it's kind of going around right now. So I'm sure more people will be checking it out. It's maybe what, 24, 27 minute monologue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's easy to to fit into your day. And and I think it's a, it's, it's a well said um, encapsulation of, of, uh, of a lot of what's going on right now. And so it's uh, also, like you said, Dave Chappelle has a, has a, I think his greatest gift out of his many gifts is is that of being someone who can relate to people, mm-hmm. and I think uh, this is this is uh, definitely that he just he can he can just find a voice that connects to kind of everybody, and and I think it's uh, I think that's what kind of got him in hot water with over his you know uh, comedy specials that maybe weren't as critical of, of Trump or, or Trump voters as, as a lot of people wanted them to be um, because he can just kind of, I don't know, he finds a way to understand and, and relate to people in a way that 
not everybody's always comfortable with, but uh, this, this, uh, and I was kind of critical of that, of his uh, stand up special for a different reason. I just, I didn't think it was that funny. Um, but I, uh, this, this was uh, not joke heavy. And so this was, uh, th- that didn't really factor into it. So um, I-, I thought it was, it was a really worthwhile watch. Mm-hmm. And there's something uh, just unrelated to the uh, the kind of the rage he's voicing. And something striking at the beginning is it's got the shots of uh, the people. Most stand-up specials, you know, you got the people filling into the the stadium and they're kind of getting ready. This one is people getting thermal scanned and having masks, and the usher kind of it's an outdoor venue. The usher saying, you know, these seats are are blacked out. Um, kind of a uh, document of the new reality. He says that this is like the first concert in North America, which I don't know is completely true. I don't know how to fact check that or anything, but it's the the first one I've seen that's, uh, I guess, a captured special or movie to kind of have that in it. Just a a time capsule for life right now. Um, Besides that, the only other thing I've been watching, kind of similar to your Survivor thing, Chris, is uh, a lot of reality television in the background. We're watching a lot of Below Deck Nice. So, once we run out of that and the spinoffs, I may need the uh, Survivor Sommelier to maybe recommend an entry point for us. Because we'll be out of stuff. But that's it for uh, for my watch list, and I think that uh, concludes the watch list portion. I did not know Below Deck was a thing. It looks weird. <laughs> I thought it was a spinoff of The Sweet Life with Zach and Cody. For some reason. They do work on the Omega yacht, oddly. Just the one, the one who's not in Riverdale works on a mega yacht. <laughs> yeah. Is that how he's making ends meet to these days? Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, not not to spend too much time on it. It's very entertaining, and I, uh, we just kind of have crossed paths with it before starting to watch it intensely now. Um, it was also, uh, are you guys familiar with Steven Soderbergh's? Like at the end of the year, he publishes his media digest. What he does, like everything he's watched and everything he does, like you know, seven episodes of Survivor. It's really detailed. Yeah. For the apparently for like several years, he will have like hours and hours and hours of Below Deck. Like he's a huge Below Deck fan. Steven Soderbergh is so <laughs> always had like a little bit of interest. Like, what is that? <laughs> Does not surprise me for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Stutterberg. Yeah. Kelly and I have been talking about how uh, we've got uh, like one big hole in our reality TV kind of like resume, and it's Real Housewives. So we're like considering dipping our toes into Real Housewives. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to say dipping your toes? Um, yeah, but that, that's all we've been watching. Um, so, uh, completes the, uh, watch list. I'm just jumping here brief to say, uh, appreciate everybody listening to the podcast and things you can do to help us are subscribe to the podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Um, and give us a review that always helps. Um, we also love to engage with y'all. So our Facebook page is a good way to do it. 
that's where our content goes. Um, you can check out our site, but we also have Facebook groups for specialization, movies by us, TV by us, and games by us. Got uh, little news and news and nuggets to chew over. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, we got a Twitter too at the media by us and uh, Gmail, the media by us at gmail.com. So that being said, uh, anybody got any reality roundup they want to talk about? Besides what we've already done, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, we Top Chef is Top Chef. Um, we're, you know, the penultimate episode just happened. It's been an interesting season. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to talk about it. I think the, the best thing that, that has come from this season of Top Chef is that Brian Voltaggio had to sit there and listen to people tell him that his food has no soul. Um <laughs> Which seems absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, uh, him processing the comment—it's clear that he like he completely understands, and he's just like it's not—he uh, doesn't know how to function having that statement. Yeah, it's like oh, 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 oh. <laughs> his programming gets jammed up. Yeah, um, I always love an underdog, so you know, yeah, I agree. It's hard to talk about Top Chef. I mean, the food looks great. What else do you really say? Right. As far as the competition portion, I just think like Melissa the entire season has just been cruising to win that thing. Oh, Especially yeah. with uh, Gregory having a surprise exit when he did. Yep. Kind of uh, medicked a little bit out with his back going out. Um, but I, I'm a huge underdog fan and all this stuff, like any reality competition thing, even if they haven't um, necessarily won the season or anything like that. So I'm, I'm pretty happy to see uh, – Stephanie there, especially how she's been performing lately. I was kind of cheering her on to possibly win that last challenge, but uh, no, it was just Melissa does the three-peat, three challenge wins in a row, so yeah. Maybe we'll talk about it more when the finale happens, but my money is on uh, Melissa just cruises to that win. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I apologize for being a little quiet in some of the earlier sections. I have been spending an inordinate amount of time trying to get that YouTube video of the plane crash as my Zoom background. <laughs> 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 it's just not working out. So I now have three video files on my desktop, all of the 10-second clip of that plane crashing. And so I apologize for being a bad podcast steward. Worth <laughs> it. Yeah. As far as reality goes, uh, I've my wife's been watching uh, the newest season of Queer Eye lately, and uh, so I've caught a few episodes here and there. And it's they've they've you know mastered the formula of getting your heartstrings tugged. And, I was gonna uh, say I've heard the season's like really really good too though. Like, yeah, it's, it's good. They they still hear. they still manage to transform people. That's yeah. good to hear because the, the the season in Japan was kind of not great, um, and I think like from because of a very like privileged position that I'm in, I didn't think it was very good. Um, in that like it's a completely different culture, so like you just don't have kind of any concept of what they're doing, like why like these things are important to these people. It's just like. It's just, I'm just a little too divorced from it, so I'm, I'm happy to hear that this new season is good. So, yeah, I think uh, from, from what I can tell, it's set in Philadelphia, the new season. So, cool. yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, 
France was on like some NPR show I was listening to, maybe a, the trivia show or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the Japan season came from, from what I remember, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but came from him uh, kind of struggling with the ignorance being in Georgia for the first season. Ah. Um, and it wasn't much like, he said like everybody was super nice, but like people, when they got close to them, had lots of questions about like, being of like Middle Eastern descent and like people would just be like, how do you feel about terrorists? And like, not know, you know what I mean? And he was just like, it's exhausting to just constantly be like, yeah, I think terrorists are horrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like people, you know, being like, uh, you must love this thing because you're gay kind of thing. You know what I mean? Just like ignorant people. He said it was just like fucking taxing as hell. Um, so I think he was looking at Japan as like, I think I remember him saying that he was going to like dip out for that season. And they were like, what if we like get out of the South and get out of the States? And he was like, that would be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think I remember hearing that. Like I said, I don't, I don't have any kind of article in front of me or anything, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I bet the Japan season was hard for people who don't know that culture. Cause it is very different. Yeah. Besides that, uh, I've been watching the challenge. Maybe we'll check up with it in a little bit. Um, yeah, they keep threatening that, like, if you don't have a red skull, you're not fit to run TJ's final. But, like, can we, like, I know how to count episodes. So I know that it's like episode 12 just aired. It's not a 12 episode season, uh, it's probably a 16 episode season. So there's still time for people to get their red skulls, even though they keep saying like, could be tomorrow. It's like, no, it won't. Yeah. There's like a, there's a uh, general anxiety that everyone needs to get it immediately, but it seems like they just keep doing that every week. And there's just a bunch of more chances for everybody. Right. Also like, I really think that TJ is going to have a purge before anything. Cause like, Right now, there are 10 people who can run the final, which is a fuck ton of people. Yeah, it's, it's a ton. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I just don't know how, I mean, maybe they just run it with 10 people or 12 people or 14 people, but it's like, it's too many. Yeah, it has the opposite effect. The Red Skull, I thought it would be like, really anxious for people to get in but if it's like essentially it's like double the amount of people that can be in the final than the regular season where you just vote off people then it it, you know it doesn't really have the effect it was intended for other than them just keep saying i gotta get my red skull yeah i mean i think right now like there's four people there that couldn't run the final if it happened tomorrow like that's not enough of a penalty you know what i mean Yeah. yeah like but you got to have more than like two people who are like, sorry, you fucked up and you played wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, that was part of the thing when I, I, I left early, but watched the, the TJ and Wes episode and one of them had skulls, right? Like, right. So like they are doing it wrong if they're like not trying to get people out who could win the ultimate prize. I feel like that would be the best strategy at that point. I mean, I did it with Jay earlier. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, they, I feel like that was going to keep happening, and it really didn't. Yeah, they, they did a really shitty job strategically because, like, 
if I have my wish and I'm on the show, if you have a red skull, I'm going to vote for you to go in every time. Right. Because until I get mine and if I get mine, then I want there to be like, it's, it's, it's like you're already playing the final. If you start trying to get rid of people who have them. So like stop proliferating red skulls, like send people into the elimination who are either going to beat someone and then not create a new red skull or get rid of someone who has a red skull and then transfer it one-to-one. So like you're left with an environment of like, yeah, you might have like the toughest person who, who you're up against, but there's still just one or two or three people. Not, right. I think I, I was wrong about 10. I think there's like nine fucking people with skulls right now. Mm-hmm. Like even on the like, challenges where there are teams, like this is more than has ever been fit to run a final. So whatever MTV, maybe, maybe the cast just kind of out, out gained MTV producers on this one. Who knows? Yeah. I just, I just foresee a, uh, like a penultimate episode where it's going to be like everyone gets one and yeah. the only person who doesn't have one is the one who's eliminated. So essentially it's like a normal season and it'll yeah, be like right. Kyle. It's, it's uh, not, not, not even Kyle go home and surprises nobody. Yeah. Um, on that topic though, um, David, I don't know if you are up on the social media stuff, but um, someone who was kind of like a fun person to watch, D, um, uh, over the past week has tweeted out some really insensitive shit about the Black Lives Matter movement, and MTV has uh, cut ties with her. Um, she... It's interesting, because you could see it in last episode, uh, all the episodes have been an hour and a half long, um, except for this last one. And this last one seemed like it probably was very oriented on D. Um, but I think they took a heavy edit to it because it was only an hour long. And like D was in the elimination and like she didn't have any confessionals in the episode. She didn't have like any camera time except like what they had to show to show the elimination. So I think they... They said that they were going to air the season without like any interruptions, but I really think they cut cut like a half hour of D related shit out of the episode. I think they did. I saw an article where the uh, original episode aired in Canada. I think it was just because of timing, and it was a lot of uh, D machinations and D pissing people off, which which turns. It seems like more of a blind side that no one's even talking about in the episode. But yeah. really, like she pisses off Jenny and a whole bunch of people and you know, just flaunts that she's a challenge winner and all the kind of shit she's been doing the whole season up until this point. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty much the D content that was, uh, that was just kind of completely excised out of the show. And it seems like if it didn't happen, she would have been the main character of the episode making for a, uh, interesting, interesting watch and yeah, cutting a whole third out of the show. Yeah. So this has happened before with Camilla, um, who, um, kind of got into a verbal altercation with somebody, like said a said like racial slurs, uh, and then went on to win like one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars on the show, um, which is a bad look for MTV. Uh, but there's really not a lot they could do about like other than like don't cast shitty people. But they make their money on casting shitty people because they create drama. So I'm kind of worried that. 
taking an, an episode that is an hour and a half long and when you edit out a whole half hour because it deals with a problematic person that's on your show, makes me think of like the survivor template and I'm kind of suspicious that D might have a winner's edit up to this point. If you got, I mean, this is not the first episode that's been D focused. Um, there have been numerous episodes that are D focused. So I kind of am worried that she might kind of win this season. Mm. Yeah. The, the Camilla season was, was super embarrassing. Because yeah. there's a whole reunion show and there's a whole, like, who actually won. They don't do it until the they reveal at the reunion. And she wasn't even there. And it's like this person off screen is kind of disgraced from being a real shithead. Yeah, they won. Yeah. So, yeah, and Dee won't be at the at the live, at the, the live Zoom final. So, I'm like, <laughs> I, I really think that there's a chance, based on the edits, that, that Dee walks away with, like, a big chunk of change and MTV's got egg on their face again for propping up these people who are, like, fucking morons when it comes to social media and who don't understand that there is an actual line that comes to, like, trolling and stirring the pot or whatever they want to call it. Yeah. Well, hey, on the topic of uh, of people getting into hot water over their stances lately, um, it's nice to see that uh, the shit stain of Fox News, uh, Tucker Carlson, is losing uh, some uh, some ad supporters this week. Yeah, there's a. Uh... <laughs> great screenshot i did not look into it so i'm not sure if it's real or not but it looked like it very well could be but the one of like him with that same dumb look on his face that he has and then the like banner at the bottom was like what does a racist look like <laughs> yeah. I, saw that. I was like god i hope that's real i really really do i think it is real i think it's just like that that like lower chiron they just didn't have like they're doing a story about like you know racism in general and of course that was just perfect, perfect. It couldn't have happened to anyone better. <laughs> I mean, you know, Fox News is, is dog shit, but, like, during the daytime, it's way better than it is, like, at night. Like, uh, if you got rid of Tucker Carlson, you got rid of Sean Hannity, that's a – it is still a, a biased channel in the same way that, like, MSNBC is a biased channel, but it's much more tolerable, I think, without the two of them. And so – for him to be on prime time every week or night, I don't know. But uh, it's, yeah, love to see that asshole go down. Yeah, um, I still remember when uh, uh, John Stewart went on Crossfire back in the day and uh, tore them a, a new one. It was uh, I actually went back and watched that this week. That the clip from that is, is always great. The yeah, hurting America, stop hurting us. It's great. Yeah. Uh. Any other breezy before we jump into the? Well, did one, anybody else? Did it, Chris? Did you watch the uh, the greatest event in video game history or whatever it was called? I didn't. Um, it happened in the middle of the day, and I'm really busy with work right now. Um, I saw yeah, the the PS5 got unveiled. The uh, the Linksys router. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's massive. Yeah, and from what people are saying about it, there's like some good some some good looking games but it's like not really that exciting um i don't know without like the pomp and circumstance of e3 
that just like it's it's hard to care right now when we don't have like a release window and we don't have a price. Like yeah, the the cool price is a big thing, and they're and they're they're gonna have different versions of the system. I think one's gonna be fully digital, which means if you want a disk drive, it's gonna be probably more. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm interested to see because I was kind of interested in a disk drive just because I don't know at what point like um like 4K DVDs are going to 4K Blu-rays are going to start popping up at you know at the local bookstore on the 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 $2 shelf or something because I would be right. I would probably buy those if I had I mean I don't need a 4K Blu-ray player but if one can be included in a gaming system yeah, that's 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 the only way I'll ever get one. So I was kind of interested in that. But if that's going to be a much higher price point, I'll, I'll think twice about it. The games did look cool. Um, I think uh, Stray kind of looked cool, where you're just a little kitty cat uh, and just uh, creeping around in the shadows. And that that looked neat. I like yeah. that. But and and I love though uh, all the criticism they got was fully warranted because they kicked off the special. They kicked off the huge event with. Guys, we're gonna take you to Rockstar Games. Let, let's see what they've been working on. And people are like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" And they're just like, "Yep, Grand Theft Auto Five remastered for the third system. <laughs> it's gonna be available on launch day." And everybody's like, "You suck, boo!" Yeah, game. Yeah, there's a really funny image going around. It says like PS2, and it shows like Grand Theft Auto Three, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. And then on the bottom, it says like PS3, PS4, PS5, all GTA 5. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, 5 came out. It was like the, the last year kind of of the PS3. And yeah. then I remember I got it for PS3. And then it came with the system, I think, for PS4 when I got it. And that's where I played mostly. And I can't believe that seven years later, it's going to be yeah. the rollout game for PS5. I can't wait for Skyrim to be remastered on it on PS5. Oh, oh it will be. Yeah. But yeah, I'm. It's it's interesting. They're they're the first console manufacturer who has actually pulled the trigger on an all digital version. Um, so it'll be interesting to kind of see when that uh, if that fruit comes to bear with like. Um, you know, it's it's just an interesting idea to sell a model that's digital only. Um, we kind of are super privileged in the U.S. where data caps aren't um, aren't as widespread. Um, but like places like Australia have like a ten gigabyte per month like data cap as like a pretty not ten maybe like twenty gigs per month data cap as like a pretty regular thing. And something that people are really pissed off about recently is the new Call of Duty just had like a patch that was 89 gigabytes. So they would have to download that over four months or pay like a ridiculous fine. And like there are places in like rural America where they just can't, you know, do that. So the whole like digital only is invoking like a a really interesting discussion about like haves and have nots. Um, You know, a gaming console already is like a luxury item because it's, you know, $600 and it's used as a distraction, but it's also like, you know, their whole marketing is trying to uh, force people to realize like, this is going to be the centerpiece of your home. And like, we're, we're evolving media as a whole. And then to say to people who like, 
either can't afford premium internet or you know don't have access to it just because of their physical location that they're not allowed to be part of this evolution is like i don't know really really interesting space so i'm happy to see that playstation has gone with two different skews one for drive one without one um you know i'm I'm, yeah. I'm also interested in the fact that uh i wonder if they're i mean the benefit for PlayStation also to selling the digital version is that they can they can take a loss on that system. They can lose money on every system they sell. But they are if you buy the digital, you are locked into buying from PlayStation Store. You you can't go to Target, you can't go to Amazon and get, you know, a a discounted game. You can't go to GameStop and get a used game. Right. You are paying for now granted, PlayStation Store has great deals a lot of the time. So it's it's not hard to 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 keep a very small games budget and get a lot of really good games on on PlayStation, usually have to you're just playing from you know you're you're not playing new games really is the thing. But right. Still, it's interesting if they're trying to to kind of close off that market. I wonder if uh, there'll be any challenges to that. Like, can you can people challenge them to be able to use like digital codes for games or anything like that? Because it's uh, I don't know, it's 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 interesting. The, 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 there is definitely um, some interesting. I know that in the EU there is a law um, that kind of bans prohibitions on reselling goods. So there's like uh, there's there's that is another weird gray area uh, of the law that is just like having to evolve really fast to accommodate these you know market giants. Um, you know, and like any law, like litigation is taking a long time. Like, I think there's still litigation over like uh, apps and, you know, being able to buy and sell apps and like refund policies and stuff. Um, because, you know, it's easy to take a physical game and take it back to GameStop and say, game don't work, take it back. Um, but when you download a game and it by design, but a design flaw doesn't work, like you really don't have recourse. Um, right. to like return it um, so interesting yeah so yeah I mean game game developer not game developers console developers have been trying to close off the used game and secondhand market for a long time now um, and I think this is just like another step towards that because they they don't make money on on their consoles they've always sold at a loss and they only make money on software and on like you know, membership deals like PlayStation Plus or, you know, Xbox Gold, whatever the fuck it's called now. Um, so, yeah, did, a, a digital-only version was inevitable. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested to see if, if, like, Sony does the work that it needs to fucking do to make their servers not dog shit. Like, if I'm downloading a game that is, like, 600 megabytes, it shouldn't take four hours. But it just does. And it's just excusable for being one of three people in, in a market. Still a kitty cat game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very cute. What else anybody got news-wise? No. You got some options here? I'd love them. Uh, cool. I got a few movies uh, coming out this weekend. Um, below deck is not one of them, so I will close that tab. <laughs> I might watch that anyway. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, we got a few coming to VOD this weekend. Uh, a movie called Baby Teeth, um, directed by Shannon Murphy. It's her debut, starring Ben Mendelsohn, S.E. Davis, and Eliza Scanlon. Um, the studio blueprint that follows a couple who discover their seriously ill teenage daughter has fallen in love with a small time drug dealer. Um, and pretty much all I can find on that uh, review wise is that Ben Mendelsohn's performance is being uh, praised. So uh, there's that one. You got Bloomhouse production coming out uh, to VOD this weekend as well. Uh, you Should Have Left is the name of that one, directed by David Quip. Uh, starring Amanda Seyfried and Kevin Bacon. Uh, a screenwriter travels to a remote house in Wales with his family so that he can write the sequel to his hit film, but he begins to regret his decision after suffering from a severe case of writer's block. Uh, Miss Juneteenth also coming out on VOD this weekend. Um, <laughs> that was jarring. Uh, a single mother in a suburb of Fort Worth, Texas, enters her 15-year-old daughter in the local Miss Juneteenth pageant, despite her daughter's reluctance. Uh, movie premiered at Sundance, uh, did really well review-wise there, uh, directed by Channing Godfrey Peoples in her debut film as well. And the mother is played by Nicole Bahari. Um, she was Anthony Mackie's wife in the... Uh, uh, Vipers um, Black Mirror episode where they got stuck in the video game or not stuck in the video game but where they were playing the video game and uh, she was in something else too that I had seen uh, or remembered I can't remember what it was now I think she was, oh, she was the lead uh, one of the leads in Sleepy Hollow that show when it ran um, and then the one that I'm probably going to pick is called 7500 it is an action filler directed by Patrick Balroth in his first uh, feature-length film. Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar for a live-action short film um, in 2016, I believe. It was called Everything Will Be Okay. It's a German short film. Um, but this movie is uh, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as an airline pilot whose plane gets uh, taken over by terrorists. From the looks of it, the whole film takes place in the airplane, and it's getting like Alfred Hitchcock comps. Um, has like 15 reviews on on Rotten Tomatoes right now, but I think it's sitting at like 97 percent or something crazy. Um, and that movie is an Amazon film, and will be uh, streaming on Amazon starting Friday. I'm gonna pick that, that one. I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick that one too. Um... I like a good thriller. There aren't enough good thrillers out there, so um, I'm down with that. Yeah, this one's got a 90-minute runtime, which is like the appropriate runtime for a thriller, I feel like. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm going to go on that one, too. I feel like I haven't seen Joe Lives in something like that. Yeah, I never saw the Snowden movie. Uh, he got like praised for his performance in it, but I just never saw it anywhere. Streamants. Fun fact, David, you watched something with Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it this week. He's in Knives Out. He is? He is the... So when she's at home uh, watching TV and there's like there's some, there's some news report on, he's the reporter on the news. It's like a little voice cameo he does for Ryan Johnson, which isn't even recognizable. At all. Nice. Yeah. I guess they've been Ryan Johnson are buddies. They've been in a few movies together. 
Nice. Chris, what you picking? Uh, I'm going to pick You Should Have Left uh, because I like the look of Kevin Bacon's face on the poster. It looks stupid. And uh, it's it's going to be uh, silly and fun, I think. It's kind of like, I saw a commercial for it. It's kind of like a haunted house vibe. So yeah. I'm hoping for it. It's a spiritual sequel to the beloved Stir of Echoes that we all remember from Kevin Bacon. <laughs> the tagline to it is, the house finds you. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so I'm interested. Uh, I, I, I also like, like that this guy's directed movies are Secret Window, Ghost Town, Premium Rush, and then Mordecai. And then he took a break for a while. <laughs> he, had re, he had to rethink some shit <laughs> after Mordecai. I think maybe he was told to take a break for a while. <laughs> yeah. After Mordecai. For real. Until uh, Bloom was like, hey, uh, it's been five years. I think you can try to make another movie. Yeah, and he, but apparently he's just trying to make Secret Window again. <laughs> the plot I read, which uh, you know, out of Premium Rush, Ghost Town, Secret Window, and Mordecai, Secret Window is a winner for him. I think. Yeah, um, I will say that uh, Miss Juneteenth has got is getting pretty like great reviews too. Yeah, I'm super excited uh, to catch that one for sure. Yeah. Cool. We've got our recommendations. Only thing left to do now is to thank Willow Walkers for their intro music. Willow Walkers. Nice. <laughs> and to thank Boo Rifa for the outro music. That's <laughs> oh, like Man in a Box saying Boo Rifa. <laughs> nice. Um, and then after that, I want to say thanks to you, Swell Guys. Thanks, for, guys. For all talking, and thanks to all the Swell people listening. Appreciate and you. All, and all the Swole people listening. <laughs> swell and Swole, we got you covered. And if you've got swelling for more than four hours, see a doctor. <laughs> Although not right now. It'll be a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, just unload just, the podcast. Take it with you. Yeah. Yeah. Ta-ta for now. Ta-ta. Kicking rocks down old dusty roads. Small town, slow pokes, long time ago. Kicking out records of all the things that I know. All the things that I know.